Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would direct us, that we might honor you in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Today we want to talk about the practical part of Christian living. The practical part of Christian living. Dr. McGee would say practical means where the rubber meets the road. How is it that we live out what it is that we believe? You and I have a responsibility to live out this Christian life, not only in front of each other, but also in front of the world. Matter of fact, more specifically in front of the world because that's who we see most, people in the world. We want to start our reading today in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Over these last three weeks, we have talked about our communion in Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16 said, Is the cup of blessings which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? This word sharing that is used twice here is our word koinonia. The The old King James says communion. But he tells us that when we come around the table, we are literally sharing in what Jesus Christ did through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. As believers, we share that in common. We talked about how the fact that we are seated in him in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You and I, from the moment that salvation came to us, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He is in that. He is giving us a guarantee that we are heaven bound. So what it is that we do today, we're not trying to get to heaven on what it is that we do. We do what we do because we are on our way to heaven already. It's been settled for us. 
And so we see that. We also learned in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, this person is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You mean to tell me that all things with me have passed away and all things have become new? That's exactly what Paul's telling us. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Why is it necessary for a new creation? Remember, man was created in the image of God. And then Genesis chapter 5 tells us that Adam begot children in his image. What was Adam's image? Adam was a marred image, a sinful image. Therefore, when we come to God, he creates in us a new creation. And that new creation, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, both of these passages talks about our position in Christ. Position, how Christ sees us, how God sees us. When he views us, he views us as already seated with him in heavenly places. He views us as the old have passed away and the new have come. So as we move on in our message today, we want to talk about the practical part of Christian living. I want to focus on two aspects of this Christian living. What it is that keep us, if we let it, from our called duty to live in Christ. What are the things that keep us from living the way Christ would have us to live? And note I said, if we let it. So when we look at this, we're going to look first at self. How it is that I hinder my growth in spiritual things because of the things that I do or don't do. And secondly, I want to look at others and how they affect us. Now, this is not the old saying, well, the devil made me do it. No, this is not that. Neither is it, you know, I wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for you. It's not that either. It's a look at what is placed in front of us by others and how we respond to it. And when we look at the scripture, the scripture will point this out for us to help us understand what is our responsibility. And as we take this practical look at life, one writer said the problem with the Christian life is that it is so daily. Now, what does that mean? That means the temptations that I face today and the joys that I have today, I would get up tomorrow and there will either be those temptations or some more temptations. So when the Bible calls me to live in a particular way, it's not calling me to live that way one day of the week. It is calling me to have that as my constant way of life. In him. 
that I might live for him and put him on display. So as we look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, if we. So I ask the question, who are the we? If we. Now we know that we is a plural pronoun. We also know that it is an inclusive pronoun. So the writer is including himself along with the readers in verse 8 when he uses the term we. So are you telling me, Tom, that every time I see the word we in 1 John is referring to the writer and the reader? No, that's not what I'm telling you. Well, then how do we tell the difference? We tell the difference by context. Look with me, if you will, at 1 John 1, 1 and 2. He said, what was from the beginning, we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. So here he starts off again with we. Now, this is chapter 1, verse 1. A pronoun replaces a noun in the sentence. Most of the time, the noun is stated. Here, it's implied. So he says, we, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched with our hands, we declare unto you. Who would that we be? That would be the apostles, John and those who was taught by Jesus. But then when we get down to verse 8 and he says we, if we say that we have no sin, now he's talking, the writer is talking to, is including the readers. So if we, claiming to be Christians, Say that we have no sin. He says we are deceiving ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Interesting statement. The word deceive means to lead off of the proper path. Metaphorically, it is used to lead from the path of truth to the path of error. So, if you are claiming to be a Christian and you say that I have no sin, he says you have led yourself off of the proper path and now you are following error. Therefore, you are not a Christian. Now, John never had any difficulty pointing this out. When he writes, he writes so we can understand what it is that the scripture says. And when he says we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
he's pointing out to the fact, if you do this, you are not a Christian. Now, he says, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the true believer does. Doesn't say, well, hey, I, I don't sin. I don't have any sin in me. No, he doesn't say it. Yes, I sin. But when I sin, I go to the Father and I confess my sins to him. And the Father is faithful and just. Faithful. He does it every time. Just. He does it for everybody. Everyone who comes to him with the true confession, he forgives. And then he says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, almost as if there is, that's a bonus in there. We come to have our sins forgiven. He forgives us of that. But then that sin brings an unrighteousness with it, and God cleanses us of that unrighteousness that we then might be lamps for him, that we might share our light with those in the world. And then in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, this was a group of people who claimed they'd never sinned. Sin has never touched me. I'm just above all that because I've climbed to this new elevated knowledge that you guys are missing out on, and I have just uh, never sinned. They call those the Gnostics of that day. John says, it doesn't matter that they sing out of the same hymn book with you. It doesn't matter that they sit in the same pew with you. If they say, I have not sinned, he says, they make God out to be a liar. Now, what that mean? The Old Testament says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So if we come in and say, we've not sinned, then that's calling God a lie because God has already said, there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, does it mean that God's word is any less true? Because No, it does not. It points out who that person is. And that's what he is bringing us to. Now, as we read this, we have to think of it along the way that John wrote it. So what was next for the Apostle John was not chapter 2, verse 1. This was his letter. So he's just continuing to write. And what does he say? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the perpetuation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, as I was studying this, something came to mind that had never come to mind in this light before. Look at that first line. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. God 
through the Holy Spirit, inspired John to write this. So God's desire for you and for me is that we do not sin. That's his desire. I don't think I've ever waken up in the morning and said, hey, you know, this day God doesn't want me to sin. But I can't tell you how many times I read this. I can't tell you how many times I've taught on it. But that's exactly what he's saying to us here, that his desire is that we do not sin. But then he goes on to say, and if anyone sin, because he knows we can't live up to that. But that's his desire. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate. One who speaks on our behalf. Today, we would just say a lawyer. We have Jesus Christ to speak on our behalf. When things pop up in our lives, today we can pick up the phone and call our attorney or talk to a friend who has an attorney and get some information and then move forward with us. Jesus Christ is our heavenly attorney. But then notice what it adds to that. And he himself pointing out that he's talking about the advocate. The advocate himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This word propitiation, satisfaction. Jesus was the satisfaction for our sins as we stood guilty before God. That's why he can be the advocate because he has given himself for us. He has paid for the penalty of our sins and therefore any accusation come against us before the Father, he just says, hey, I paid for that sin. So that's what he's bringing us to do. Every day when I get up, I should remember that God's desire is that I do not sin. If I focus on that, then hopefully that would help me not to sin as much. That I might grow in my sanctification in him. Now, how do I live this out? In order to figure out how we live this out, we have to look back and then we can go forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now that's our same word deceived that was in uh, 1 John. Neither sexual immoral, immoral, immoral or idolaters, or adulterers, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, or verbally abusive, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Search were some of you. Now here's where we move forward. But you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. 
So I must realize that I was washed, that I was sanctified, that I was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. I was washed. You were washed. We was washed by the washing of the word when we heard the gospel and we gave our life to Christ. I was sanctified. I was set apart unto Christ. That's what he's telling us. So when I remember that, then it should cause me to live more for Christ than for myself. These are the things that we want to know. Then he says, yes, I'm seated in heavenly places and So we are still here living on this earth that we might carry out this practical living. So what is the point here? He wants our practice in our everyday life to meet our position in heaven. So I should look more every day like someone who is seated in heavenly places instead of someone who is tied to everything here on earth. That's what we are being called to do. Paul gives us some insight in this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He says, therefore, you have been raised with Christ, excuse me, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. He he says, why we're here walking around on this earth? We are to set our minds on things that are in heaven and not on things that are on earth. Now, I remember when I was younger growing up, I used to hear that some Christians are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. This passage says that's the way a Christian ought to be. Ought to be so heavenly minded that he is or she is earthly good. Why? Because when you set your mind on things above, then the things that come out of you are going to be more like him than more like the old you. And that's what we are being called to do here. We are to live out our lives as we see these things that we have been called to do. Now, we have looked at how we are to deal with the self that hinders us in getting and being productive in Christ. One of those ways that we are to live can be hindered in a Christian uh, walk is from others. Sometimes we can put a thumbling block in each other's way. Now, that's no permission for me to sin because a stumbling block lays there. 
God has opened my eyes to see that it is a stumbling block, then I am to deal with that, not just to fall into the pit because it's there. That's not what he's calling us to do. As we start in this session, let's go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The word deceiving, as we've talked about, means to cause to stray or to lead astray, to lead aside from the right path. So we can either do this to ourselves or we can do it to someone else. For instance, a false teacher would be leading you astray from that path. They come to, they used to come to our doors before COVID, and now they write us letters trying to persuade us to come from the true path to their error that they are too blind to see. And so when we see this, we ask ourselves the question, what is it that we are to do? This word deceive. How is it used? Matthew eighteen twelve. Jesus uses as he talks about the lost sheep. He says, what do you think? Matthew 18, verse 12. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is lost? This is our word, deceived. One is, one of the sheep goes astray. What's that picture like? Have you seen sheep or cows in the field or grazing? They simply follow their nose. Their nose down grazing grass, and they just walk following the nose. And before you know it, this sheep has got off from the herd. Now he's lost. He says, what will the man do? Will he not leave the ninety and nine? And go after the one who is strayed. So the straying doesn't matter whether you do it yourself or someone has done it to you. He says that the straying is what is wrong. And something needs to be done. Look at how it's used in Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. Do not be misled. Do not be led off of the path into error. Now, why would he say this to the Galatians? Remember the Galatians, they had thought, well, you know, we got saved by faith, but now we're going to do it by the law. So Paul writes a letter to them to tell them, no, that's not the way it should be. He says, I am amazed at you, that you are so soon led off of this path. So he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh reaps corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. What is his comparison here? Those Judaizers who come into the church and says, guys, I, I know you are living by faith, but you have to keep the law also. He says that person is sowing from the flesh. And what they are going to reap is destruction from the flesh. 
I want you to stay on the right path so that you, as you live out your Christian life, you will prove that you have eternal life, and that's what you will receive at the end. Now, Peter uses this phrase, but he uses it in a different sense. He uses it of those who have already gone astray. And I find it interesting that they led themselves astray. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. He says, they are stains and blemishes. Now, we have a pronoun here, they. But the description that follows tells us automatically that they are not believers. They are stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deception as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having hearts trained in greed, accursed children, abandoning the right way, they have gone astray having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loves the reward of unrighteousness. Now, you don't have to know who Balaam and Beor is. Just listen to what follows the name. He says, who loves the wages or the rewards of unrighteousness. That just describes wicked people. But I love the point that Peter makes he says, they even feast with you. That means they was in the church. Okay. Then he says, having their eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having their hearts trained in greed. Said they are accursed children. Abandoning the right way. They did it themselves. They abandoned the right way. Now, it doesn't mean that they were Christians and they left. It means that they had the right way in the word of God and they did not accept it. So they abandoned the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the ways of the wicked ones. And that's what he is pointing out. Now, we, we, we spoke of they, and that is the pronoun. So how do we know who that they are. Look up at verse 1 in chapter 2 of Second Peter here. He says, But false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. He says when he was writing up in what we have as chapter 1, he ended that by talking about how the word of God came through holy men. But he says, but there will be false prophets among you, just as there were among them. Who, that's that pronoun, who, referring back to the false prophets, and all the way through this passage, he keeps using they and them. He referring back to the false prophets. So when we get down to the verse that we read, verse 13, they are stains and blemishes. He is telling us. 
He's still talking about the false prophets. Why is it important for all believers to pursue the practical part of Christian living? Timothy will help us, the letter to Timothy will help us with this. Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. Now, I know that this is a letter written to a pastor. But I want us to look at some things that are laid out here to say that we need to scribe for these things as well. Because remember, as Paul is writing to the pastor, he's writing to the pastor that he might instruct the church on how it is that they might live and how it is that he might live himself. Starting our reading at verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nurtured, on the word of faith and of the good doctrines which you have been following. But stay away from worthless stories that are typically of old women. Rather, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. But body body training is just slightly beneficial. But godliness is beneficial for all things since it holds promises for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full assurance. But, excuse me, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all mankind, especially of the believer. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your usefulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example to those who believe. Then he says, until I come... Give yourself to attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was granted to you through the words of prophecy with the laying on of hands by the church or by the council of elders. When we look at this passage, and he's given him instructions here to lay out, he says, pointing out these things to the brethren, the things that he has instructed him to give, as Timothy is to point those out. He said, you will be a good servant of Christ, constantly nursed on the word of faith or the scriptures. That's what nurses us. That's what grows us up. That's what keeps us going because we are fed on the word of God. He says, and of good doctrine, which you've been following. What's a good, that's a good compliment of Timothy. He says, I want you to follow this. You've already been doing it, but 
Keep that up. But stay away from worthless stories that are typically of old women. Now, this is not a put down of old women. It's a statement that was used in that day to talk about worthless things. He says, stay away from those stories. Doesn't matter how many people are talking about them. You stay away from those things. Now, when you stay away from those things, you have to do something different. He says, rather, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. And then he goes into this explanation about bodily exercise has a little benefit. But godliness benefits all. And I love the fact that he does that because when he uses this word, rather discipline yourself, that's the word that we get our word gymnasium from. He says when you are exercising this way, you're up there sweating. You're really getting into the exercise. You're really building that body up. But that's just a little consequence. Rather, discipline yourselves to godliness. Because that will be a help to those who hear it. Godliness is beneficial in all things. Then he says in verse 10, For it is for this that we labor and scribe, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all mankind. What is our hope? Our hope is in God. He has died on the cross for us. He will come again and get us. Therefore, that's where our hope is. He says he's the savior of all mankind, especially to the believers. Savior of all mankind. Yes, Christ died for the world. Especially for the believer, you and I are the ones who have applied it to our lives. You and I are the ones who have given our life to Christ. Therefore, it is especially to us. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youth. Rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example. He covered everything in Timothy's life. Speech. Conduct, love, faith, everything there be an example. So when the believer see you, they will see love. They will see a conduct that is worth following. That's how you are to conduct their life. Now, should only the pastor in the church live that way? No. We all should live that way. Why? Because you may be the pastor on your block. You may be the only believer on your block. So this is how you have to act. A couple of weeks ago at Mount Wilson, there was a Christian group came in. And they were asking me some questions, and I was answering them based on biblical principles. And one lady in the group says, how many of you guys work up here? I said, I don't know, 40 or 50? She said, how many believe what you believe? I'm the only one. She said, that's a pity. She said, but thank God that there is a representative here. You must live your life in a way that when people see you, they know that there is something different. And that's what he is calling us to do here. 
Then he says, I want you to stir up that spiritual gift. Don't neglect that spiritual gift that is within you. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. If you don't know what it is, you need to seek it out. You need to find out what your spiritual gift is. Let me give you a hint. Others are blessed by it. That's what your spiritual gift will give you a clue to your spiritual gift. Now, when did uh, this laying on of hands and all of that took place? Probably in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. He comes into this town. He sees this young man, Timothy, who is highly spoken of by the brethren. What does that mean? He's already a Christian. He's already living out his Christian life. Paul sees him and wants to take him with him. So he would have in front of the church confirmed him some way that he might go with him and be a part of his group. And then as Paul continues in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, he says, take pain with these things. Be absorbed in them. Be absorbed in them. What is it? Uh, is it bounty that's supposed to be the quicker picker-upper? That's what, when they show that commercial, they show you popping it down and it just goes. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Be absorbed in these things. Let it be all over you. What it is that you do, what it is that you live, how it is that you do it. He says, be observed in these things so that progress will be evident to all. What progress? The progress in his life. His Christian living will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to teaching. Persevere in these things. For... As you do this, you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. You will save yourself. I thought the guy was already saved. He is. He's already saved. But what he's talking about here is perseverance of the saints. The saved saint will look like he's saved because he perseveres. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, 11 to 13. He says that many false prophets will arise and mislead many people. And because of lawlessness is increased, most people love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. Jesus is saying the last day will be a lot of people in the church that will just walk away from the church. He says, but the one who endures, the one who sticks it out, the one who endures to the end, that's the one that was saved. The others never were saved. Therefore, they just went back to doing what they were doing before. He says, but the one who endures to the end they would be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Why is it important that we live out this practical Christian living? 
because as you do so, you are preaching the gospel with your lives. And given an opportunity, you will speak of the gospel with your voice that they might hear, understand, and come to Christ. That's why we've been left here, that we might live out this Christian life that God has given to us. Father, we thank you for your word. As it has gone out, we pray that it would take hold in our hearts and that we would live in a manner worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen.